0: Our way. Uh, I want you to think about how it is that Jesus uh, turns our lives upside down. Uh, so picture with me in your mind's eye for just a second. Uh, all of you will remember from like at some point in your life, maybe uh, when you were in school, uh, having a big world map on the wall. Uh, so kind of get that picture in your mind. What does it look like? What did that world map look like? look like, uh, all the continents there stretched across, you know, that big map that was on in your classroom. Uh, maybe somebody, maybe you've got one at your house, you really like maps, and so you've got one uh, on a wall in your home as well. But you can probably pull that up uh, in your mind as to what a, a world map looks like. Now let, let me show you one uh, instead. Uh, is this the picture that you had in your mind? No. Is there, is there something wrong? With that particular picture, I mean, all the, you can read all the letters. I mean, it says Greenland down there in the, in the bottom left, and Australia is up there kind of in the top right, and uh, the Russian Federation is over there on... That's not the way that we look at maps, is it? You know, this, this, is, a, this is an actual map that you can buy in a, uh, online, you can buy one of these in a store... Uh, obviously, it's called an upside-down map. Uh, really clever uh, titling there by the marketing department of the map company. Uh, but it, it is intended to get you to think about things differently. I mean, uh, you know, we call it the North Pole because a scientist decided it was the North Pole, and it was up on the, uh, and it was up in space. I don't know that there actually is up in space. But, but that it's supposed to be pointed upward. And, and so this turns everything around, and we're not used to seeing the United States over on that side and flipped upside down and Alaska toward the bottom and Brazil toward the top, and Australia is supposed to be over on the other side and down. This kind of makes you reframe everything. It, it makes you notice things that maybe you never noticed before. It, it, it makes you, you know, kind of take stock as to how you've always peered, into what you think is reality. That's what the life of Jesus does to us. Is it? It begins to turn things upside down. It forces us to look at life through a different lens. To look at life in a different kind of way. And so, I want you to look with me this morning at John chapter eight. This continuing saga of Jesus being revealed to us, and, and specifically in this particular section of the Gospel of John. Jesus is confronting all of the wrong ways that people look at Him and understand Him. Uh, This is, again, the continuing portion of the story where He is having to confront the crowds and the religious elites because they're looking at Jesus all wrong and misunderstanding Him. Here in John chapter 8, I'm going to begin in verse 31, read down through the end of the chapter, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but one that is really worth our efforts this morning. It says, "'Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, "'If you continue in My word, you really are My disciples. "'You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free.' "'Well, we are descendants of Abraham,' they answered Him, "'and we've never been enslaved to anyone. "'How can you say you will become free?' "'Jesus responded, "'Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin.' A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham. They replied, well, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did, but now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. You weren't, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Now, let me pause here and, and just explain why they accused Jesus of accusing them of being born of sexual immorality. These are these are a group of Jewish people that can trace their lineage perfectly through only Jewish ancestors all the way back to Abraham who is the father the progenitor of all of the Hebrew people. He's the first one that God calls out of a land called Ur. And he, and, he, and he gives Abraham 12 sons who create the 12 tribes of Israel, and these are the Jewish people that literally they can trace their genealogy all the way back to Abraham, and there are no non-Jewish people in their family heritage. And so they're saying, if you, it's, they're saying to Jesus, if you're accusing us of not having Abraham as our father, then you're saying that somewhere along the way that there was a Jewish man or a Jewish woman in our family history that committed a sexual immorality by having an affair with a non-Jewish person who was not their spouse, that somewhere somebody fooled around. And so that's why their hackles are raised at this particular point. I don't know exactly what hackles are, but it sounds really good. So continue on in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here, for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks From his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies, yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, You aren't even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out from the temple. Like I said, a lengthy passage, one that's pregnant with meaning, and and some ideas that we need to be able to deal with. So let me just launch in here. Radical claims demand, require radical responses. And Jesus is making some radical claims about Himself. Throughout this whole passage, uh, starting much earlier in earlier chapters, we've been trekking through them. And all through the rest of this gospel, we're going to see Jesus make some incredibly radical claims about himself. I mean, think about it for a moment. If there was somebody you knew who suddenly began claiming equality with God, who began claiming that that they knew or that they existed before some ancient character like Abraham, you would have to say, that's a pretty radical claim that you're making. This is not normal uh, as to what people talk about. But Jesus makes these radical claims for himself. He says in verses 32 and 36 that he can set people free from sin. He speaks in verse 38 about what he saw in the presence of God the Father. And so he is claiming that he has previously been in the glorious realm. In verse 42, he says that he actually came from God, that he has some kind of origins in eternity. In verses 51 and 52, he speaks about how he can grant eternal life, In 54, he he states something that probably sent their brains into just a a meltdown, and that is that, that the Father was glorifying him, a man on the earth. In verse 55, he says that he knows the Father, and then there in verse 56, he makes this incredibly bold, radical claim, before Abraham was... I am. If I could put it into summary uh, statements, I I would put it up as these three statements. Jesus claimed equality with the Father, that He was glorified by the Father, and that He is everlasting in nature. I mean, these are the things that Jesus is claiming about Himself. Uh, now, and, and this is not what a normal person says about themselves. If a normal person says this about themselves, then then it's time for them to be checked into a hospital somewhere, uh, or or they are the worst kind of infomercial sales hack who is selling you a bill of goods that whatever it is that thing is that he's selling, it's not going to work. I mean, this is this, this is not the the cartoony you know, kind of watered-down version of who Jesus is that we can go along with. This is not hippie Jesus, this is not musical show, the greatest showman Jesus, you know, this is not singing troubadour across the Israeli countryside, European Jesus who is safe and tame. This is a dangerous man who is claiming these things, and he's either right or he's crazy Or he is the biggest liar in the history of the world. And so Jesus makes these radical claims. And in light of these claims, we have to react. The radical claims by Jesus require then a radical response by us. If these are the radical claims of the one that we say we're going to follow then this is not the place where we can be tepid or that we can take half measures, that we can kind of stutter step through this. And I'm fearful that there's too many of us that we have really mediocre responses to the very radical claims of Jesus. But instead, there's really only two kind of responses that we can make to Jesus. It's either rejection or surrender. And in the case of of this crowd around Jesus, they were very actively rejecting Him. Uh, They were insulted by Him. They didn't like the idea that somehow Jesus was claiming uh, that He had had a relation to God the Father that somehow they were missing out on. But here's the crazy thing is that this crowd that is surrounding Jesus then and and the crowd of us that surrounds Jesus on a regular basis— while we are filled with death, Jesus is consistently holding out life to us. Even in the midst of their barrage of sarcasm and barbs and kind of spiteful attitudes, Jesus is consistently holding out life to the people that are the doubters and the cynics or the know-it-all or the agnostics or the ones that are religiously convinced of something else. Because in the passages that we saw earlier, even in this, in, in this like, kind of run of stories, we see that there are some people that are rejecting Him and there are some people that are accepting Him. There are some that Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins And meanwhile, there are others that are saying, I will totally believe in you. And so the radical claim that Jesus makes requires a pretty radical response for us. Now, in this room, uh, I would would dare venture that probably lots, if not most, uh, could we say a, a vast majority of the people in this room have made the response to Jesus that they want to trust Him for their salvation. Now, maybe you're here and you say, I've not made that decision yet. I'm kind of tinkering with that decision. I'm figuring out that decision. I, I like Jesus. I like what he represents. I, I-, I think I want to walk with him. I'm pretty sure that he's divine and I- I'm coming to an understanding that he's risen from the dead, that he died for my sins. A- and you're still figuring out that decision. Well, we want you to make that decision and we want you to make that decision today. Jesus invites you to make that decision that you make that radical claim of faith, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for your sins and He rose from the dead. And if you trust in Him, you can have forgiveness and salvation. It is really just that simple and that beautiful. And so once we've made that decision, then how do we display this radical response? Now, in this passage, there are lots of different ways that I could frame this up, but I chose four. Four daily displays of our radical response. How is it that that you can put on display that you have responded appropriately to these radical claims by Jesus? I've got four. I'm going to try to move through the first three really quickly and then settle in for a few extra minutes on the last one. The first way that I think that we see this is by living with freedom to sin. You see, surrender to Christ happens once, but then it shows up every day. You know, you get freed from the grip of sin on your life that brings condemnation, that brings eternal judgment. You get freed from it like a sentence has been expunged from your record. Like the the judge had decided you deserve life in prison And Jesus comes along, and he frees you from that sentence. He frees you from that punishment. And now you're free from that punishment, and so now we get to walk in freedom from that sin and from that punishment on a day-by-day basis. There in verse 32, it says, uh, "'You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free.'" In verse 34, he says, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and a sin does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son, speaking of himself, sets you free, you will really be free. If you're a believer, sin no longer has authority over your life. However, you can still give it your affections. And so we need to be careful of how we walk because sin does not have authority, but you can surrender your affections to it. So find your joy and your satisfaction in the one who is divine rather than in the things that are temporary. Make sure that you find your joy and your freedom and your liberty in the divine Son of God who is eternal rather than the stuff of earth that is going to rust and corrode and break down and fall out of favor. So live with freedom to sin. Secondly, love with abandon. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. He said, if you really did belong to me, you would love me. Now, many of you uh, have been in lots of Bible studies, and you know there's all sorts of words for love. In the English language, we have one word, love, L-O-V-E, love. But in the Greek language, and some of you, this is well-worn territory for some and new for others. In the Greek language, that Uh, was common 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was written. There are multiple words for love. There is a word for friendship kind of love, brotherly love. The city uh, north of us in Philadelphia it's called the city of brotherly love because the Greek word phileo means brotherly love. Uh, We get our modern word erotic from the Greek word eros which means a physical romantic love. But then the love that we really need to be concerned about is this Greek word agape, and that's the word that He uses here. And agape is the self-sacrificial, divine, never-ending, no-boundary-markers kind of love. And normally, that word is most often used in the New Testament for the way that God loves us. And here, Jesus is saying You need to lean into an agape kind of boundless, abandoned kind of love for me. That if you really knew me, if you really know me, if you're really in a relationship with me, you should be able to love me with absolute abandon, a reckless love that absolutely and completely trusts Christ. Number three, we should be able to live with eternity in mind. I mean, so many of us stay in survival mode all the time. So many of us are just going from, you know, one thing to another. We're just trying to get from one chore to another, one doctor's appointment to another, one board meeting to another, one responsibility at work to another. But he says we need to live with eternity in mind. It says here in verse 52, then the Jews said, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word... He will never taste death. Jesus makes this claim several times in the passage where he, he tells them, If you know me, you will not die. If you know me, you're going to live forever. All that we have and all that we experience here on the earth is all temporary. Every, every relationship, every company we work for, it's all temporary. It's not going to last forever. There are some things that feel like they are going to last forever, like Facebook and Google, like they're going to be around forever. But but even those are, are eventually they're going to shut down and they're not going to be there anymore. Sometimes it feels like the pain in our life is going to last forever, like the sadness, the depression. Uh, it, it feels like that the uh, the the diagnosis, the disease, is just it's never going to let it. It's never going to loosen its grip on us. But even those things, even our pains, are not going to last forever. Uh, Sometimes we feel like we're on, you know, that we've experienced a high, a joy, uh, a a success in life that becomes all-defining for us. But even that's not going to last forever. Was it just this past week that somebody in South Carolina won the Powerball jackpot? $1.6 dollars now here's what i want to ask you now it was um less than a year ago that another person won a jackpot that was not quite that big Uh, but it was right around a billion dollar jackpot is there anybody here in the room that you could raise your hand and you could tell me the name of the person that won that jackpot I mean, come on, this was just like, this is just one of us. Just a normal citizen, like a normal Joe, just like me and you, who suddenly became basically a billionaire. Anybody? Of course not. Because even that incredible windfall of money and their names splashed across the newspaper nonstop for days and days and days completely falls out of our minds because there's another big celebration, joy, win, success that somebody else has that completely outshadows it. So even if you had won the billion dollars, next week everybody would have forgotten you. And so instead, we should live with eternity in mind that Jesus is the one who promises that you will never taste death. And he speaks about this in the spiritual way. I mean, I am glad that this body is going to die. I am ready to check this thing in for a new model, okay? This knee doesn't work so well. This shoulder creaks a lot. I got a thing in the back of my neck. I got this one artery over here that that tried to kill me a few years ago. I mean, I got stuff that I'm ready to check this thing in. I'm ready to, to live forever. I don't want this anymore. And so I get to live with eternity in mind day by day. But then number four. And let me take a few minutes to build this out. Because we live with freedom to sin, we love with abandon, we live with eternity in mind. But one of the major themes throughout this whole passage is about truth. You see, number four is if you really want to display your commitment to Christ, it's to follow His Word. You say, oh, Philip, come on. I mean, you're going to give us the Sunday school answer here at the end? like We already knew this one, Philip like we're here like we like literally we show up every Sunday to listen to you yammer for 30-ish minutes. You know, we like our life group. We go and we listen to somebody teach like oh, you know, of course we know this one. But do we? I mean, what would it look like not just to have a tepid kind of response to Jesus? To his very radical claims, but instead to have a very radical display in your life to the radical claims of Jesus about his, uh, that he's eternal, that he is equal with the Father, that the Father glorifies him. And so if the Father is busy glorifying Jesus, the one that we've put our faith in, then what should that do with the way that we follow his word? Well, let me give you some ideas about how I think that that ought to happen in your life. I think you should consume it by reading and listening to it on a very regular basis. It ought to be something that you love consuming the Word of God, like from, from Genesis to maps, okay, table of contents to Revelation, like you're covering the whole territory. And now we've got all these beautiful devices, and 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 you can listen to it with your phone, or you can listen to it online, or, or you can read it in various modern translations, or if you want something that is soaring, archaic, kind of Shakespearean language, you you know we've got older mo, older translations from a few hundred years ago. I mean, there's all these beautiful paraphrases, and 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 word for word translations, and optimal equivalences, and all this kind of stuff that you could. Absolutely just consume the Word. Is there a consuming passion and desire in your life for the Word of God? Or is it something that you just feel like you have to check the box? Okay, I need to read a chapter today. I need to work through something. But consume it like, to love its impact on your life. Secondly, a way that you can follow His Word is to pray through it. Sometimes we get stuck in our prayers. All of us do. I do, you do, everybody does. Like you've prayed about a certain thing so many times that you just don't know what else to pray about it. This is, instead of having a fall back, it's actually a place to start is to know the Word of God well enough to where you can just simply recite back to God His revelation to you. God, You said in Your Word... Let me just take a, an easy example, the 23rd Psalm that probably some of you memorized at, at some point along your, your, your lives. It's one of the most well-known passages within the Bible. Uh, God, You said that the Lord is my shepherd. He's paused there. And think about all the different ways that God has guided you and guarded you the way that you have been like a little lamb in his flock. Lord, you said that the Lord is my shepherd, that I will not be in want, that I'll not have any needs. God, I, I, right now I feel really needy. I feel like there is just all sorts of stuff around me that I can't meet the needs. I can't figure out what to do next. I can't decide which way to go, this way or that way. Or I've got all these needs, but you said I'll not be in want, so I'm going to trust you that you're going to make perfect provisions in my life. Uh, Lord, your psalm says that uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. You make me lie down in green pastures. God, I'm really tired right now. I feel like I just run, run, run. I just feel like my mind just races. I just feel like there's a never-ending list of things to get done. Uh, but you have this thing in, the, in your Word that you tell us that we're supposed to rest, we're supposed to rest in you, and that, that you're going to make me lie down in a green pasture. And uh, so, God, would you just make me lay down right now? Would you just put my life together in such a way that I can just rest? And you, you see, this is a pattern that, that in, in following His Word, let His Word guide even your prayer life. Another way that we should follow His Word is to study it daily and diligently. I, I know that there are all sorts of reasons and excuses for which people will give of, I just couldn't get to my Bible today. That is a declaration of priorities. It really is. I mean, because you were able to get to Netflix today. I mean, you were able to get to the newspaper today. You were able to get to your hobby today. Uh, You were able to get to all sorts of things today. I mean, you were able to get to all manner of things today. And, And to say, I just couldn't get to my Bible today. Now, are there going to be days where... Like there's an emergency and you got to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you got to bust it out of town to go visit somebody who's in the hospital in another city. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be those kind of crisis moments in your life where literally uh, there's not a moment to spare all day long. But that's not, that's not the 99% norm of our life. And if we're going to make a radical response to the radical claims of Jesus that he says, I am equal to the Father, the Father is glorifying me, and I am everlasting in nature, if this really is the Jesus that we're going to serve, if that's really the one that we want to follow, then our response to him should not be tepid and half-measured, but rather daily and diligently studying his word ought to be normal in our lives. I would also say we should participate in life groups and growth groups. You should not do this on your own. Don't study the Word on your own for the rest of your life. Get into a Bible study group with a group of friends that are in a similar phase of life or studying a similar topic that you're trying to dig in on, and collectively and together... Be in this thing. Minister to one another through the study of God's Word. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, we want to have a church where everybody's in a life group and there's a life group for everybody. We don't need anybody to be left out in the cold to feel like there's not a group of friends that somehow they can't connect with in order to study God's Word together. We want to do this together. By doing it together, it magnifies the power of God's grace in your life because you see it at work in the lives of other people, and there are other people that are actively trying to get it to work in your life. they also say that you should obey everything you find in it. There's nothing in God's Word that you get to have a pass on. Well, that's just not convenient for me right now. I know that whole thing in there about tithing and offering is there, but it's just, you know, it's just not convenient for me right now. I know that whole thing is in there about, uh, about making disciples, but it's just not convenient right now for my relationships. I know that I'm supposed to be compassionate to the widows and to the orphans, but that just doesn't fit into my frame of life right now. There's nothing in the Bible that is extracurricular and that is optional. When, when God says it, we're supposed to follow it. If we'll remember, probably the one part of the Great Commission that we kind of gloss over the most is that it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And you say, well, I don't, I don't know everything that God has commanded me. Well, go back up to Numbers 1 and 3. And start making a list. What are all the things that Jesus has commanded us that we should be following? And everything that I find in God's Word, I'm going to obey it. And then finally, follow it into God's mission. God's Word will always lead God's people into God's mission. That is just good standard logic for us to operate by. God's Word will always lead God's people into God's mission. He will always set you on fire for the rest of the world to see the glorious gospel, a light, in a person's life. Let me take you back to the upside-down map. Jesus starts to retrofit the way that we think about life. He changes our perspective so that everything we thought was right, we figure out it wasn't. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this map is uh, superior to all the other maps you've ever seen in your world. I don't know what's up and down in the universe. I just know that, uh, you know, the people who make calendars said that today is Sunday, and I'm just trusting that somebody's been counting, has been keeping count, okay? I, you know, I just know that somebody made a map, and they said that the North Pole is the upside of the map, and so I'm, I'm trusting the cartographers on that one. Uh, there's your word of the day. Um, sorry, it's a lot of random stuff up here. Um, But this forces me to realize that I get things set in my mind so that they're comfortable. I find ways that make my life comfortable because I'm broken. And Jesus, as He mends me and He fixes and He redeems me, He makes these radical claims that you and I can be very happy to make radical responses of repentance and of faith and of finding joy in His mission and in His purposes so that we can pray with abandon for a guy like Chris Phillips who did a crazy thing of moving out of a nice suburban neighborhood where he had a really cushy corporate job making a ton of money as a, as a medical device salesman and he abandons the safety and security of all of that neat pa- neatly packaged life to move out to a place where people don't know Jesus, don't want to know Jesus, don't want you to tell them about Jesus because they need to hear about Jesus. Because he made a radical response to the radical claims that Jesus is making. Well, how does that work out in your life and in mine? With our neighbors, with our family members, with the sin that we try to keep on a leash and keep as a pet. Instead of just continuing to manage The little spiritual portions of our life, we should let Jesus and His grace come over us like a crashing flood. And allow him to have full control so that he can get all the glory and we can get all the joy. Let's pray together. Father, I I would ask